0: Amen. I said this in the first service. Uh, I'm going to say it again. I'm not going to ask if I can pray, but uh, we're going to begin our our time of of the sermon with a prayer. Even now, Lord Jesus, even now, Father, may my words fall to the floor, but yours flow through me, that it wouldn't be Connor who these people hear today, but that it would be you. So Lord, transport us from this sanctuary and, and let us enter into your throne room that we could truly worship the King of Kings. In the Lord of Lords. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke's gospel. We're going to be looking today at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And as you're turning there, I want to introduce myself. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I am Jeff and Kelly Redmond's favorite son-in-law. I'm their only son-in-law. Uh, But every day, I think becoming more and more the favorite. Um, It's a pleasure to be here today. I wanted to thank you guys as a church for the opportunity to be able to preach. It's always a blessing to be able to present God's word uh, and to share what his holy scriptures have to say. But I wanted to take a moment before we dive into the text today to thank Jeff and Kelly. Um, As I told you in the first service, I want to share with you again uh, a big thank you for your faithfulness in the ministry of God's kingdom. Um, You have been Truly a, a great influence, not just on this church, but on my family, uh, on your daughter, Julie, next to you. Um, I can only hope and pray that we as a family are able to continue in perseverance and in, in faithful ministry the way that you have. So I wanted to thank you for that. But as I've told you guys uh, before, this moment is less about you and more about the one that we're going to read about here in this text, not Mary or Elizabeth, but about Jesus as the King of Kings. And so let's look at what the Bible has to say today about the Son of God and what it has to say about our faith in action as we see modeled for us from both Mary and Elizabeth. This is what the Word of the Lord has to say beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. God's Word says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, as you all know, I'm sure that you know, I'm certain of this this morning as you're gathered here at church on December 3rd, that this is a rather incredible and special time of the year that we are gathered together and we are celebrating. We're in the middle of our Christmas season, our our season of Advent. And during this time, we have an opportunity as a church, not just here at Parkway Baptist, uh, not just at the church that Julie and I serve at in Mobile at Hollander's Island, but everywhere across the globe, we are able as a church to celebrate something rather spectacular. And again, I know that you guys know this, but we're not here to celebrate the lights on the house or the family that's coming into town or even the beautiful decorations and Christmas trees that we have around us, but we are here to celebrate the incarnation, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this passage today, as we look toward the Christmas season, we have an opportunity to see a moment in time before Jesus was born. But in order for us to understand it, we need to grasp first kind of the context of what's happening prior to this passage today. And so just briefly, let me recap for you just briefly what happens in the verses that lead up to what we have just read. You see, when Luke had written this moment in time, he had shared with us previously two encounters of an angelic type. You see, the angel Gabriel had come at the beginning of Luke's gospel and had presented himself to a man named Zechariah. He was a priest, he was of good standing within society, and Gabriel came to him to share with him some exciting news. He looked at Zechariah and he said, son, you will be, uh, find that your wife will become pregnant with a son, and Zechariah looks at him, and, and I'm sure in his mind the gears started turning as he thinks about his wife, Elizabeth, and he begins to calculate how old she may have been. We think she might have been between 60 and 90 years old by this point. And Zechariah looks at Gabriel and says, I don't know how that's possible. Not responding in faith, but instead responding in doubt. What we come to find happens is Gabriel looks at Zechariah and he tells him, he says, because of your doubt, you're actually going to be made mute up until the birth of your child, up until the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for the Christ child, the one who is to come. Elizabeth, shortly thereafter, finds that it has come true. She is pregnant. And we read in verse 24 that she hides herself away for five months, keeping her pregnancy a secret to herself. Well, shortly after that, as a matter of fact, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we find that Gabriel comes back with yet another message, one that's of utmost importance for us as we enter into this season. Because you see, Gabriel comes to a young girl, probably between the ages of 13 and 15, named Mary. You guys know who she is? She's the one that Gabriel comes to and and he says, you are going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit of a child, but not just any child. Gabriel specifies and clarifies to her and says, this is not just any child, but it's going to be the Christ child. It's going to be the one who is the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy that has come before Of all of those things that you know of the Old Testament, Mary, every prophetic writing, every prophetic word, Jesus, the one who is in your womb, will fulfill. He will be the Savior of the world. He tells Mary that it is her responsibility, it is her job and her calling to carry and give birth to him. And it's incredible what we see Mary do here. Remember, this is a child. She's likely between the ages of 13 and 15, and she responds, uh, unlike Zechariah, not responding in doubt, but she responds in faith. She asks Gabriel, how is this going to happen? But it's not a question of whether or not it will happen, she's just curious of the logistics of it. And I'm sure that Jeff can speak with you at another time. We don't have this time this morning to, to fully break down the importance of the virgin birth to our Christian doctrine and our understanding of the scriptures, but we find that it, it becomes true that Mary does, in fact, become pregnant. And she responds to Gabriel, and she says in verse 38, she says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And it's at that moment that our passage picks up for today. And what we find in this particular passage is a continuation of the faith that is shown up to this point in the story. What we see is a very clear picture of what faith looks like as a follower of Christ, that as followers of Jesus, we are not called to remain stagnant. We're not called to remain still, but in fact, we are called to have an active faith, one that imitates what we see from both Mary and Elizabeth in this passage. And we see Mary's faith in action immediately as we open our text. She's told this news from Gabriel, and what we read in verse 39 is that she immediately gets up and she goes with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. There's faith in action on full display here. But I want us to take just a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of Mary as she does this. It's a girl, a child really, who has just heard the news that she is pregnant. And I can only imagine that she is scared to death. And yet, what she has already shown us is that she chooses faith over the fear that she has in her life. And that faith immediately leads her to action as she goes in haste, likely traveling between 70 and 100 miles to go and celebrate a pregnancy with her relative, with Elizabeth. She goes, probably hoping to celebrate the unlikely pregnancy of Elizabeth herself, but also hopeful to share with her the news that she has just received from Gabriel. It's a natural thing to do. If your Facebook feed looks anything like mine, you don't have to scroll for very long before you find somebody announcing the fact that they're pregnant, or, or even announcing with some sort of extravagant gender reveal what the, the gender of their baby is going to be. It's very natural. As a matter of fact, I will never forget the moment that my wife told me that she was pregnant with our firstborn, with Robert. He's four and a half now. But she, uh, she had this, this wonderful plan where she bought a pair of Air Jordans that were toddler size and put them uh, in the box on the doorstep for me to encounter when I came home from work one day. And I'll never forget walking up to that box and being a, a, a sneaker fan myself. I, I remember picking it up and my first thought being, that's not my size. I, I, this is a tiny box. My feet are not going to fit in these shoes, whatever's in here. And I didn't open the box, but I walked inside and there was my wife glowing, sitting in the living room, smiling at me. And I just was confused. She looked at me and she said, did you open it? And my thought was, no, this isn't my size shoes. These are clearly for somebody else that you just left out. She said, did you open it? I said, I said no. She said, please do. And I opened the box. And then I looked in at the pair of black and gold Jordan 6s that were in this box with two positive pregnancy tests on top. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget the moment that we got to share. It was actually 3 years ago now, uh, after I preached on a Sunday morning behind this same pulpit that we got to share the news of Julie's pregnancy with our daughter Abigail, with both uh, my in-laws and my parents who had come into town as well. You see, Julie had a plan to give Robert, our son, who would have been, uh, what was he, one and a half at that time, give him the pregnancy test and have him go into the kitchen and show it off to his grandparents. And he walked into, into Jeff and Kelly's kitchen, and, and he, I think he either handed it to his nana or he threw it at her. I'm not sure. It's one and a half. Something may have happened there. And there was mass confusion because it looked like he was throwing to her a thermometer. It was a little bit confusing. But I remember their reaction as they looked down and saw that we were pregnant with Abigail, our daughter. It's a very normal thing to want to do, to share this news. But I want us to consider for just a moment... What this may have been like for Mary, it's a very exciting thing to get to do when you've been trying to have a child. But can you imagine what it was like for her? Can you imagine the fact that she is a child and she's not even married, and yet she's going to share this news? Not just that she is pregnant, but she is going to share with her older relative who had been barren for her whole life that she is pregnant with the Son of God. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, she would become pregnant with the one who would be Savior of the world. Now, obviously, she would be fearful. But the faith that she shows and the action as she goes to see Elizabeth is just remarkable. But the beauty continues and is found actually even further shown to us in the fact that she doesn't even have the chance to hand a pregnancy test to Elizabeth. She didn't even have a chance to go and buy a pair of toddler Jordans to leave on the doorstep. Because the minute she gets to Elizabeth's house, the minute she announces her presence, Elizabeth immediately knows that she is pregnant. In fact, the Bible tells us in verses 41 to 44 that the baby in her belly leaped in the womb. You see, if you read the first part of Luke's gospel about John the Baptist, the the writer of the gospel, Luke, tells us that John the Baptist had a very specific ministry that he was going to practice during his life. His purpose as he walked the earth was to prepare the way of the Lord, to make ready a people for the Christ who was to come. And the beautiful part about it is, is that his ministry began before he even took his first breath. Isn't that incredible? I mean, Luke gives us a really, really clear picture here about the sanctity of life and the fact that Jesus and John, as they're dwelling within their mother's wombs, are in fact more than just a fetus. They're more than just a clump of cells or whatever society tries to tell us that they are, but John leaps in the womb as he hears the voice of the mother of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible to think about the faith of Elizabeth that we see where she looks at Mary and she says to him, she says to, I'm sorry, as, as Elizabeth looks at Mary and she says to her, I felt him move as I heard your voice. And blessed are you that you get to carry the Christ child and blessed am I that I get to even be in your presence. It wasn't because she had a baby bump. It wasn't because she was doing some sort of pregnancy waddle. It was shown to Elizabeth because of her faith. It's incredible. It's incredible, and and the beauty is found in the fact that all it takes is Elizabeth hearing her voice. And it's this incredible display of faith that we see from her as she proclaims who this one is that is in the womb of Mary. Now, often we find ourselves giving credit to Peter as the first one in the Gospels to declare who Jesus is and and why it is that he has come. We read in, in Luke chapter 9 that Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he calls him Messiah and he calls him King. But really, it's Elizabeth who we see here displaying this incredible faith, declaring Jesus as the one who is Lord with an unmatched faith that we see in these verses. And as it develops, as it continues, we see their faith in action only further shown to us in the concluding verses of our passage today. That there is faith in action as we read Mary's song of praise, what we call the Magnificat. I think it's a truly incredible what we see Mary do here. And I can't stress this enough. Again, this is a child that we see proclaiming these beautiful words in verses 46 through 55. She praises God. And she praises him for three particular things that I want to bring to your attention this morning. The first being that she praises God for the fact that she gets to be involved. She praises God for the fact that she gets to be involved. And it's what we see in verses 46 through 49 that Mary praises God for these things. Not saying that she'll be called blessed because of anything that she has done to deserve it. But because of the fact that God had looked upon her and had chose her to do what it is that she is doing, that she would in fact carry the Christ child, that she would give birth to the Christ child and that she would mother the Christ child. And Mary praises God for that. She praises God that he is going to use her as the vessel for this, even if she is one of the most unlikely of choices. You see, this isn't new theology. We see it regularly throughout all of the scriptures that God would use the unlikely to be able to do his work. In fact, Mary's song of praise here closely imitates what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You can go read it at another time, but we find that Hannah, who is barren, praises God in a prayer for the fact that she was able to give birth to her son Samuel. You can go all over the scriptures and find this theology of God using the least likely of people to do his work, whether they're virgins or barren, they're young or old, God uses them. You've been spending a lot of time here at this church in First and 2 Chronicles, and you know the story of King David and how he was selected to be the king of Israel, the fact that he was the least desirable of Jesse's sons, he was the runt of the litter, the one that God looked upon and said, that's who I want to be king. That's who I want to rule over these people. Not to say that he didn't fail over and over and over again, because he did. But to further show the fact that God uses the most unlikely of people. I mean, you can go back to the first book of our Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 12. As God looks into a pagan land at a pagan man who's worshiping pagan gods, and he says to Abram, he says, follow me. Go where I'm showing that you need to go. And he calls the least likely of people to be his followers. In fact, if you want to, you can flip over a couple pages in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, and you can look at a genealogy of Jesus, and you can take your, take your finger and close your eyes and just point to any name in that list, and you're going to find somebody who is not a likely choice to be a follower of God. Just look at the people of Israel. They weren't the largest in the world. They didn't have the biggest or baddest army, but yet God looks at them and chooses them and uses them as his people. I want you to just sit and think about that for a moment. As followers of Christ, do we ever consider and stop and think about who it is that God has chosen to use? Do we ever stop and take a moment to praise God for the fact that he chose us? I don't want it to be confusing because it is him who chooses us You and me. Look at the disciples of Christ. If you have a moment later today or or later this week, I want you to to turn to Mark chapter 2 and look at verses 13 through 17 at the call of Levi, the one that we call Matthew. And and read about the fact that this tax collector was chosen as one of Jesus' 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. And, And even though the Pharisees and the scribes may have looked at Matthew and said, he doesn't make sense to be a follower of the rabbi, he's a tax collector. He's barred from the synagogue. He can't even go in and worship. And yet God calls to Matthew and says, follow me. One of my favorite preachers, his name's Alistair Begg, he once said in a sermon that we ought to honestly ask ourselves if we were ever a likely choice for Jesus to use, or maybe better put, a likely choice for Jesus to save. I mean, I I think that if we answer that question honestly, we can clearly see that the answer is no, we aren't. We aren't the likely choice. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I can really only speak for myself this morning, but I find that as a follower of Jesus, I constantly fail as a son, as a son-in-law, as a husband, as a father, and certainly as a follower of God. Constantly letting him down. Constantly failing. Yet... His Son looks upon me, and I'm confident of this, and I hope that you can be confident of this too, that His Son looks upon me, and He looks upon you, and He goes, you know what? You're exactly who I came to save. Because He tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, He says that He, as the Son of God, came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and save the least likely of choices. Mary, in the song of praise, she praises God for the fact that as a 13 to 15-year-old girl, as a virgin as one betrothed and not yet married, that God would look upon her and use her. But she also continues and praises God for who he has proven himself to be. And again, this is something that we see laced all throughout the scriptures, and all throughout this song of praise. What we see Mary do is that she recognizes and recalls the ways that God has proven himself over the years. I can imagine, and, and the Bible doesn't say this, but I can imagine in her mind as she's singing this song of praise are all of the stories that her parents had told her as she was growing up about who God is and who he has proven himself to be as the God who is merciful, as the God who is powerful, as the God who is faithful. I can only imagine that she's thinking as she's declaring this to Yahweh that she's thinking of the story that her mom and dad had told her of how God had used a broken vessel like Moses who couldn't even speak correctly to lead the Israelite people out of Egypt. That he used Moses to hold up his staff at the edge of the Red Sea, and you see the waters part on both sides, and the Israelite people walk across on dry ground. I can only imagine she thinks of, of the Israelites entering into the promised land as the same thing happens. They find that the Jordan River is split in half at the, at the flood times, and they walk across yet again on dry ground. I can only imagine that she considers the stories of her people having gone off into exile, and yet God continually brings them back to him. But I think maybe most of all, she considers the words that she likely knew out of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where God says this to Moses. He, he says, The Lord, and this is, this is Yahweh speaking, and he calls himself by name. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness mary is thankful she praises god for who he has proven himself to be and finally she praises him for keeping his promises I and mean, again you can go all the way back to the beginning of your scriptures All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we read about a promise that was made in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had chosen to sin against God, after they had chosen to eat from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, and God pulls the two of them and Satan aside, and he has a special message for each of them. But he looks at Satan, he looks at the serpent, and he says, you will be cursed above every beast of the field. In fact, you're going to be made to slither on your belly the rest of the days of your life. You're going to have to eat dust, Satan. But the curse that he gives to Satan is is shown to be a promise that he actually gives to Eve as he looks at the serpent and he says, but there will be one that comes from the offspring of Eve who will bruise your head, who will crush your head. Mary, as she sings this song of praise, I can only imagine she's thinking of the promise that she had heard that had been made to Eve, that there would in fact be one who would come. There would, in fact, be one who would do exactly what God is saying. And we see her faith in action that she gives, God, gives to God, praise for maintaining and keeping these promises and these covenants. She knows this to be true, and it causes her to praise. It causes her to show this faith in action. But I want you to know this morning that this is not just a a piece of writing that was written 2,000 years ago for a people group 2,000 years ago. That, That lays the foundation for us of how we interpret and we apply the text. But this is a message for you and I here today. I want you to know, church, this morning, and I want you to be encouraged today to find hope in the fact that the same God who Mary praises in this passage is the God that we are here to worship right now. Have you, have you ever stopped to consider and realize the fact that the God that sent Gabriel to speak to Mary and to Zechariah is the God that we're talking about today? The God that we're singing about today? The God that we're worshiping here today? Have you considered the fact that the God who sent his son to be born of a virgin, to be born of this Mary is the one that we're worshiping today, that the God of Israel, is the God of Parkway Baptist Church. It's incredible. It's incredible. And he deserves to be honored and he deserves to be praised. My prayer is that as a church, not just here at Parkway, not just at our church in in Mobile, but as a church globally, that we would praise him for the fact that he continues to keep his promises. Because, it's the, because he continues to keep his promises, that we can trust the fact that Jesus, who was in the womb of Mary as she sang this song, that Jesus is the one who lived a perfect and sinless life. That as the author of Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet lived without sin. We can trust the fact that he died for each and every one of our sins on the cross, and that he who knew no sin became sin for everyone who would place their faith in him. And church, we can trust the fact that he didn't remain dead. We can trust the fact that by the same power of the same Spirit who helped Mary to conceive of this child, that he would be raised from the dead and that he would conquer both sin and death, allowing us to live in his life. And as his followers, we have a duty. We have a duty to imitate the faith and action of these two women, of Mary and of Elizabeth, and to offer our praise to Yahweh thanking him for choosing us, thanking him for proving himself to us and thanking him for keeping his promises to us. As we close today and as we end in prayer, I want you to consider that gospel message. The message of salvation that God loved you enough to have sent his son to die so that you don't have to. If you're here today and you already know that, I'm, I'm glad. And I pray that it encourages you to know that. But if you're here today and you don't know that as the truth in your life, I pray that you would hear it today and for the first time, place your faith in him as Savior and Lord over your life. That he died so you didn't have to and that he's alive today so that you can live with him forever. And all he requires is what we see from Mary and Elizabeth in this passage. That we would have faith in him. True faith that leads to action. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, Holy God, Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for choosing us. And thank you for leading us. Father, I pray that glory is brought to your name. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.